Hello everyone, it's Brother Knox from Beyond the Block, again this week with a solo episode. We are going through Matthew chapters 11 and 12 and Luke chapter 11. We've got some great, some really great texts here, especially the whole my yoke is easy, my burden is light text from Matthew 11 that I'm going to mostly center my thoughts around. And obviously I'm Every week I bring whatever's fresh on my mind, what's going on in my life, things of that nature. So of course I'm going to put this in dialogue with, um, well today I went, uh, I went to the Wellesley Friends meeting, which is a Quaker meeting for worship. And then last week I went to the Fresh Pond meeting, another Quaker meeting. So that's on my mind. I will be putting some texts in dialogue with Quakerism. Uh, so I don't know if this is going to just go on a random detour or what this is going to do. But I love this this text here of, of sort of rest. I'm at the time where much in the church brings me anxiety and discomfort and agitation. And I need to rest, find some stillness and peace and simplicity. And recently I've been finding that among our friends, the Quakers. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. This is the New English translation. And so let's talk a little bit about the Quaker meeting today. I went there and we sat in silence for an hour waiting waiting on God, listening to God's voice, um, resting in the stillness of the peaceful environment. We sat on benches, very, very old wooden benches in a square circle type thing. So it's a rectangular, simple meeting room. There's no altar, there's no podium, there's nothing that leads to any sense of hierarchy, right? There's no stand up there. There's no red cushy seats. There's no best seats because they're all equal, which is one of the, the uh, Quaker testimonies. The testimonies include simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship. And this goes back to the simplicity and equality pieces, right? We're all equal. And I feel weird in the church because I dare to actually believe that we're all alike unto God, yet now we have massive disparities in the church. We're not treated alike. Single versus married people, people with families, men versus women, uh, white people versus people of color, um, queer and trans folks. Like there's just a whole bunch of ways where there's so much structural inequality and disparity. And this leads to uh, quite a bit of a problem for me. But fortunately, uh, Jesus speaks to this throughout the gospel. I, I read online this week, someone, I don't know who this is, by the name of Mark Charles said, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, the gospel tends to be good news to the poor, disruptive to the status quo, offensive to the rich, and terrifying to those in power. Right? So... That's really what should keep the leaders of this church quaking is, uh, well, ironically, talking about Quakers, but they should tremble when we actually catch sight of 
the power of the gospel that's right there in the text. And Matthew eleven five says that this is how you recognize the gospel. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. Those on the margins are, are, are brought into community, brought into peace and wholeness. Um, I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm a police abolitionist. Um, there's just so many ways the gospel subverts our expectations, turns everything upside down, and uh, renegotiates all of these hierarchies. Um, the use of force, the use of violence, which is behind the whole prison system and the, the whole police system, and behind the whole militarism system, and behind the whole devastation of the environment. All of those things should be ruled out by a sense of peace and simplicity. So let's go into more of Matthew 11. Uh, I, I didn't frame what happened. It is, so folks came from John the Baptist and asked if Jesus is the one who is to come, where should they look for another? And Jesus says, well, look at what you see. Go tell John what you hear and see. And that's where we get uh, the fruits of Jesus' ministry. And I think to be fair to John, Jesus hadn't, uh, it, it's unclear what the Messiah was going to do. And it's unclear whether Jesus had fulfilled all the pro prophecies, which he hadn't yet at this point in his ministry. So that's kind of an open question. I think we should be fair to, to John. And even the, John is the greatest, right? Uh, where does it, uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but, uh, yes, here it is in verse 11. I tell you the truth among those born of women, no has, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of, of heaven is greater than he is. So here we have this situation that, that, uh, in a sense, John is the greatest of all and the culmination of all the Hebrew Bible prophets. And yet the simplest one among us. Is, is greater than he is. And I think that's another form of subverting expectations. Let's talk a little bit about um, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people lay hold of it. This sentence is difficult to translate. There's some ambiguity and it's also difficult to interpret. Uh, but the way I take it is not that the kingdom of heaven will conquer by means of violence, but it will suffer violence. And that violent people will try to uh, will try to conquer it, and this gets back to well, what side of the violence is Jesus on? Because he will be the recipient of violence, and he his followers by nature should should do the same, be the recipients rather than the cause of uh, or the perpetrators of violence. And I think this gets back to this core testimony of God as love. And I want to talk a little bit about this idea of unconditional love because there's some prominent people in the church that have tried to say that love is conditional. And I have a real problem with this because the Quakers teach that there's an infinite ocean of love available directly in God, right? Anyone. An, an ocean of love, right? And church leaders are trying to take an, a thimbleful of that ocean water and sell it to me by means of going through a bunch of complicated hoops and checklists. Like, oh, if you, if you do these thousands and thousands of checklists, we'll give you uh, 
this little thimble full of ocean water. Like they have a monopoly on God's love or access to God. That's one thing I love about the Quakers is the democratization of access to God. Anyone has access to God immediately, right? There is no priesthood. There is no um, apostolic succession. There is no hierarchy. We are all equal before God, and that is so beautiful. But let's go back to this unconditional love. There's a big problem with that because 1 John 4 teaches very clearly that God is love. Hotheos agape estin. Um, and in that uh, in that case, agape is in an emphatic place, placed before the verb for for emphasis. God love is. Uh, if you keep the Greek word order, God love is. But anyway, so yes, God's essence, God's nature is love. So how can God be conditionally loving? That's like me being conditionally gay. My essence is gay. I can't not be gay, right? God cannot not love. God is love. So how in the world can anyone claiming to be a prophet of God say that God loves conditionally? I mean, that's, that's like saying I'm conditionally gay. No, that's my nature. That's who I am. God is love. That's literally what it says. God is love. God is love. So how can he so how can God not love? And then we get another further uh emphasis of this in the expectations that God has for us. Love your enemies. We see this in Jesus' teachings. Love your enemies. Now that is the best explanation of unconditional love. We're supposed to love those that hate us, those that kill us, those that want to do bad things to us. There's nothing that an enemy can do that puts them outside the scope of our love or what the love we're obligated to have. Because as the Quakers say, there is that of God in everyone. Right? There's, a, there's a piece of God there. And so we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to love our enemies. And if we're supposed to love our enemies, how can God command us to love our enemies if God does not love God's enemies? God's love is unconditional, right? God's love is... I wish I had James Jones here to say amen to that, right? God's love is unconditional. And that's actually where this peace and stillness and security lay. That's how we can rest in God. And in Christ's yoke is to know that God's got our back, that there's this infinite ocean of peace and love available, not through any intermediaries, not through any ordinances, not through any checklists, not through any of that other stuff. Um, in my head, I'm imagining a debate between one of these Latter-day Saint apologists and a wise Quaker. And the Latter-day Saint apologist says, oh, well, your ordinances aren't valid because you don't have the priesthood authority. And the Quaker says, well, we don't even do ordinances. So there. And we don't need a priesthood because we all are equal before God. We all have immediate, direct access to God. With no, no priesthood, no clergy, no intermediary, no hierarchy, um, immediate access to God. And there's pieces of that that are in the Latter-day Saint world, right? We've got the way we do our testimony meetings, the way that we do understand personal revelation. We've got pieces of that in our, our tradition. But anyway, let's go back to... Um, one thing that I learned from from uh, 
Robert Barclay. Robert Barclay was a Scottish Quaker in the 1600s who wrote an apology for the true Christian divinity, which is probably the leading uh, defense of Quakerism of all time. It might be, I think, or at least one of the historic defenses. And here's what Robert Barclay says about uh, this text. Come to me, I will give you rest. So here's what's happening with Barclay's line of reasoning, is that if you are converted and regenerated, Christ's yoke uh, won't be oppressive, that it won't be burdensome because you have put off the old Adam and put on the new man. Um, of course, Barclay's going to have it not gender neutral. By the way, man theoretically used to be gender neutral. Now we, we can't use it in a gender neutral way anymore. But anyway, here's what Barclay says. Now, Barclay, of course, writing in the 1600s in early modern English, has very long convoluted sentences. I don't even know where to begin. So I'm going to be beginning in the middle of a sentence. And with the apostle thou mayest say, Galatians 2.20, it is no more I, but Christ alive in me. And then thou wilt be a Christian indeed, and not in name only, as too many are. Then thou wilt know what it is to have put off the old man with his deeds, who indeed sins daily in thought, word, and deed, and to have put on the new man that is renewed in holiness after the image of him that hath created him, Ephesians 4.24. And thou wilt witness thyself to be God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and so not to, to sin always. And to this new man, Christ's yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Though it be heavy to the old Adam, yea, the commandments of God are not unto this man grievous. For it is his meat and drink to be found fulfilling the will of God. Close quote. This is from um, uh, an important text in, in Barclay's Apology where the commandments of God aren't oppressive if you are regenerated. Because, and I think part of it goes back to you know them and you know the reasoning behind them. I think what makes a yoke burdensome is having arbitrary, baseless checklists that serve no purpose, that are just dumped on people, right? You got to do this because I say so. Because I say so is probably the most satanic phrase in in the world because i say so because it it does not allow the person agency it does not allow the person to co, -co cooperate in in growth and development towards godliness right if you bring someone along and say here's the commandment and here's why and we've talked about why i think knowing the reasoning behind a commandment saves you so much effort. And if you truly are converted and repented and understand the reason behind a commandment, then you don't want to do it anymore, right? Um, yeah. Let's. Just, and then this gets back to, I think the, the hardest commandment for LGBT saints is not the law of chastity. That's, a, that's actually easy. The hardest commandment for LGBT saints might be love your enemies because we have so many enemies in the church. So many enemies with power and privilege and money who, who want to control the conversation and to control our, our access to the divine. I'm like, no, 
Like, it's hard to love people who have spent 40 years denying your humanity. 40 years or more. Denying our humanity, denying our access to civil marriage, denying our access to uh, equality in the church. Yeah, so it's upon... uh, But anyway, my point is about the arbitrariness of commandments is what makes them burdensome. Do this because I say so. Because I say so is not what the purpose of mortality is, right? The purpose of mortality is to come and learn and grow and and make mistakes and learn through experience why why the commandments are the way they are, right? The problem comes in when we've got this hierarchy where certain people know better, right? I have to just trust certain leaders that they know better. I'm like, they don't bear the cost for getting it wrong. They have picked up these uh, views somewhere, right? Um, it's clear that the leaders of church have picked up somewhere the idea that that gay relationships are inferior. Is that from God? Or is that from what everyone else was thinking in the 1940s and 50s when these leaders were growing up? I don't know. But it's clearly not from the Bible. It's clearly not from modern revelation. It's clearly not from um, an internal witness of, of Christ. I just don't, um, I don't uh, hold by this idea that that people can put on a yoke on me and one that they wouldn't have themselves, by the way, um, and put this yoke on me and and this oppressive burden of not of an arbitrary, baseless view of of commandments, right? Anyway, let's let's talk about Matthew twelve. Here we've got Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath again. And we've talked through a number of these things, but I want to connect this now with the rest, because here in this, in Matthew's context, now this Lord of the Sabbath piece comes right after the I will give you rest thing. So that that brings a whole new layer of meaning to uh, to this, what it means to give rest, right? Because you've got the Sabbath rest, you've also got the rest of the promised land. You've got all this anxiety in the wilderness, but then you've got an entrance into the promised land where you're able to be uh, and live into your fullest identity. But anyway, uh, we've covered this before, but I just want to remind people about ordinances, right? And I think Jesus would say the same thing about ordinances. Ordinances are made for people, not people for the ordinances. They're there to point you to Christ, but... They're not this checklist. They're not this 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 uh, hoops that you need to jump through to get that thimble full of water that the leaders have a monopoly on, right? I do not think uh, that leaders have a monopoly on the truth or a monopoly on power or authority or access to God. And, and that's not even what Jesus taught, right? But anyway, these ordinances, they if they're at their best, they point to Christ. If when they're at their worst, they close off people from Christ. And let's talk about the Sabbath. Here's what the author of Colossians said in Colossians 2, 16 through 7. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. So what it says here is, don't let anyone judge you on Sabbath days, right? So I don't think the Sabbath is a binding ordinance the way that uh, 
some people think it is, right? I think it points to Christ, which is exactly what Colossians says. But we are to decide what the Sabbath means to us, what we're going to do and not do on the Sabbath. And we are not to let anyone judge you. Some people may want to treat all days alike. Some people may want to have the Sabbath a special day in certain ways. That is totally okay. We're one body with many members. We need to, to wrestle with that. Let's talk a little bit more about, um, we've, we've covered a tree is known by its fruit in Matthew 12. We've covered that elsewhere. But again, let's talk about um, ordinances. Yay, ordinances. Not ordinances. Um, accountability, that's the word I meant. Uh, accountability. Like holding our leaders accountable. Jesus um, wants us to judge trees by their fruit. And let's talk about the sign from Jonah. This is in, in, in twelve thirty eight to 42. So people are asking Jesus for a sign, and he says, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And a lot of people rightly connect this with the resurrection of Jesus. But what I want to connect it with is the illumination of the outsiders, right? Because the whole point of Jonah is that it's the Ninevites, the outsiders, not just the Gentiles, but the historic enemy, or one of the historic enemies of Israel. The Ninevites got it. They got it, right? These outsiders were subverting the story. We're, we're getting it uh, from the margins in, right? It's not what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem. It's going what's going on in Nineveh. That here these people that you thought would be the last to recognize the God of Israel, they repented, Right. Same thing with the Queen of the South, also Gentile. Right. This is likely the Queen of Sheba. So Jesus's point is, look, the Ninevites, the Gentiles, the outsiders got it. The Queen of the South, Gentile, got it. She got it. Right. She came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. Now something greater than Solomon is here. So this is a really, really um, interesting way of of redefining access and equality right that all people have access even the outsiders they get it better right so um so there is that and then we've also got a, another uh later in in luke in matthew 12 56 46 to 50 we've got the whole jesus's true family where he redefines family oh no people are redefining family well jesus redefined redefined family okay so just deal with it uh, people said, oh, look, your brothers and or, or your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting, uh, wanting to talk to you. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing towards his disciples, he said, here, chosen family, chosen family, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There you go. Um, redefining family, chosen family. Uh, let's talk about Luke 11 now. Luke 11. So here we get into this, this thing about prayer. And we've talked about prayer before. And Robert Barkley, I'm not going to go into the details, but he says you need to pray by the Spirit. You need to have this a sense of prayer and preaching needs to be illuminated by, by the Spirit. Absolutely illuminated by the Spirit. And I want to talk about this. So here we've got the Lord's Prayer again. 
And here we have a bunch of imperatives. Some of these are uh, third-person imperatives. So in, in uh, Greek, you actually have second and third-person imperatives. These are commands or requests done either to the second person, the you, or the third person. And it's hard to translate those in English. And often it's done as let him or let her, something like that, or let them. But it's not a permissive. It's not, oh, you need to allow them to do this. It's he must do this or she must do this. So it'll say let him uh, let him ask or something like that or let him eat. It's not permissive. It is saying, oh, this is, a, this is the English way of doing a third-person imperative. But what we've got is third-person imperatives with, with God's name being honored and God's kingdom coming. And then we've got second-person imperatives. Give us our, each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Do not lead us into temptation. So I think it is so bold that we are allowed and encouraged and modeled to use imperatives with God, telling God what to do. A commander request, right? Do this. That shows that Jesus teaches us that God loves to be accountable to God's character. And when we pray, we can pray with boldness. And that's exactly the boldness that happens in this parable of the friend at midnight. Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Um, and then the friend says, and it's at midnight, oh, don't bother me. The door's already shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give you, give up and get up and give you anything. But because of this guy's persistence, this audacity the, of persisting at midnight, the friend, not because uh, he's a friend, but because of, of the annoyance, will get up and give this person, his friend, whatever he needs, even in the middle of the night. Um, that's what prayer is like. Uh, and I love how it goes on where it says, uh, ask, seek, and knock. Right? For what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, verse 11, will give him a snake instead of a fish. That's, a, that's how God is. Like God has this infinite regard for God's children, this unconditional love. Um, I forgot if I already talked about this, but loving your enemies is, uh, is as unconditional as you can get, right? But anyway, that's how God loves us. That's how we pray. I think we pray by the Spirit. Um, prayer is like breathing. Prayer is like breathing. It's like the lifeblood of of a spiritual life. I want to connect this a little bit with Luke chapter 18. Let me turn to Luke 18. Here you have another prayer about how we should annoy God. Like, I'm going to be real annoying because this is this is the character that Jesus is telling me to do. Like, I'm going to annoy God. I'm going to annoy God's servants. And this uh, parable in Luke 18, there's a widow um, who asks a judge for justice and she keeps annoying him. He keeps refusing. Uh, but later on, he gives in because she keeps bothering him. And then Jesus says, Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he de delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. I like this idea. Um, and let's go to what this, this unrighteous judge says. Though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice. 
or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. That's how we're supposed to pray. I forgot to even read the opening uh, the opening of this parable, it says, Then Jesus told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not lose heart. Right? We should always pray. And this isn't to say that God is evil and unjust like that judge, but if it works on a judge that's unjust, how much more will it work on a God who is just? I want to talk a little bit about... Um, now let's look at Luke 11. This is the... Uh, uh, let's go back to Luke 11 and find the, the the whole thing about hand washing. So we have a bunch of things, the sign of Jonah, inner light, uh, a number of texts that we've already covered either in Matthew or Mark. But here's what we've got for Luke 11. This is verse, I'm going to focus on 37 and 38 with the not washing of hands. Let me I'm have to find it. Okay. So, as he spoke, a Pharisee invited Jesus to have a meal with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was astonished when he saw that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, didn't the one who made the outside make the inside as well? But give from your heart to those in need, and then everything will be clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and every herb, yet you neglect justice and love for God. Right? But you should have done these things without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, you love the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces. I want to pause and say, I love how the Quakers have it set up because you are literally equal. You're all on equal footing. There's no special chairs. There's no there's no pulpit. There's no podium. There's no fancy red chairs. We're all equal. And we're all facing the center. There's no front and back. There's no one at the front. Uh, you know, there's no one up there on stage. We are all sitting in a round circle. I mean, it's more of a rectangle because of these the benches are, are uh, rectangular. But we're all equal. Right there's there's no tippy top, and I'm I'm getting tired of having a tippy top in the church. Right, that's not at all what Jesus intended. I think that the servants of God, there's places for servants of God to point towards God, but when it comes around to everything pointing to the servant, um, now that servant has become a master, and that's not the way it should be. And I love how the the focus the quick there's a quickest focus on the inside. Right, not on so much the outside, the outside ordinances. And I have to pause and say this hand washing thing was a sort of a ritual hand washing. It wasn't a um, a for the purpose of cleanliness type hand washing. There was a ritual component, and that was the primary meaning of it. And uh, and Jesus didn't do it. Jesus didn't do that ritual. So this speaks to what the point of rituals is or should be. To point towards Jesus, but once we've got Jesus, well, what do we what do we need the uh, the ritual for? I don't know. There's just a lot of things that I uh, that I'm sort of weighing through, and uh, and I also want to connect this testimony about the inside with with racism, because to judge things based on the outside is what racism is about. Right? Something 
the the amount of melanin on the surface, the you know, just a few milliliter uh, milli, millimeters thick, like that's not. We should not judge people based on the color of their skin, and it's and of course racism is more than just judging people based on the color of skin. There's uh, entire systems and structures that lead to disparity without any ill will on the part of anyone or any deliberate discrimination based on the color of skin. But we have to interrogate these things and uh, and figure them out and go back to sense of what's what's internal and what's inside. And I think there's a there's a there's this access to this infinite ocean of love and peace already inside. Um I mean there's this Quaker principle that what you are seeking is available within. And I hope that we all this week will tap into the inside and 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 listen and wait on God internally rather than thinking about all the hoops, all the checklists, all the temple recommend interviews, all the all the ordinances, all the checklists. You got to get all these checklists. It's, it's, it's not like Pokemon where you got to catch them all, right? I don't think that, that is uh, the way it should be. I think there's this infinite access to God, this infinite ocean of peace and love available immediately without intermediaries. And uh, having having the church leaders ration this ocean? Why are they trying to ration an ocean and um, and sell it to us in, in little parcels? I'm like, no, no, it's free. It's all free, right? Um, and I want to close with what I started with. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Jesus says. I think taking a step back, taking a deep breath, and getting a clear sense of simplicity and peace and stillness is what I'm taking away from what Jesus said. Anyway, blessings on your journey, all of you. Uh, this has been another, this is a actually pretty short episode, but uh, thanks for listening to Beyond the Block. You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. You can also find us by searching us on Facebook. So I hope everyone has a great week. Until next week, bye-bye.